As we look at Isaiah 6, I want to do take just a moment to set the stage of Isaiah. We're going to spend these five weeks in Isaiah doing Advent readings from Isaiah and considering who is this king, who is this expected one who is coming. And I thought this morning it would be valuable for us to go back to Isaiah chapter 1. And in going back to Isaiah chapter 1, for just a moment, we get a bit of the setting in which our reading this morning takes place. In Isaiah chapter 1, if you look at chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, what we see is the Lord's displeasure. The Lord expresses, expresses displeasure with dead ritualism of the people's empty worship words and activity. Isaiah 1, 11 says this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? That's a powerful, powerful ex- a- accusation of the Lord upon the people in the midst of their worship. These are worshipers, all right? Today, these would be like Sunday morning people. It comes with an accusation. It's a powerful accusation because what they are engaged in is exactly what the Lord has required of them in their sacrifices, right? It would seem they could try to make the argument back to the Lord, but you are the one who has required this sacrificial system. But here we see that that worship Even worship that the Lord requires apart from faith is unacceptable before the Lord. It's just empty ritual. You see how this continues in verses 16 and 17. We see the Lord calls the people to repentance from their empty worship, their vain activities and words. Verses 16 and 17 says this, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The Lord calls the people to repent of their evil deeds and walk in righteousness. For some of you, that rings a bell. You might remember the book of James. In the book of James, it becomes very clear that faith is expected to work itself out in joyful obedience and justice among the people of God. That this is a a mark, a sign that the Spirit is at work among the people of God. That they're being transformed to walk in His character, to bring justice and righteousness and to love the way of the Lord. And this is not true of the people to whom Isaiah is written. And and just to to pause there, you're going to hear me call during the course of these five weeks over and over again to enter into Advent. Not just to remember, not just to celebrate something that is outside and is a true historical reality, but it is yet presently true. And, And we have to ask ourselves, does this ring at all true for us? Is there anything true about the accusation of the Lord over the people of God Today, is there anything true about a people who who gather in dead ritualism 
I do not seek justice because their hearts have not come to crave the way of the Lord. So they aren't truly worshiping Him. The third aspect of Isaiah 1 is the Lord promises redemption. Isaiah 1.18, it says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I want you to see this. It's beautiful. After all of these accusations, the Lord comes to the people and the Lord is the one who washes. The Lord is the one who forgives and the Lord is the one who restores. Therefore, the faith-filled repentance is to wait upon the Lord for salvation, for cleansing, for atonement. The context of Isaiah, lostness in worship. The context of Isaiah, a call to repentance for the people of God. And up to that point, I'm thinking, what a great way to launch our Advent celebration, right? And the context of Isaiah is the hope of cleansing. A hope of cleansing that restores the people of God to worship in His presence. To love His character and reflect it in our ways together. What's interesting is this is the same three phases of the vision in Isaiah 6. Turn with me there again. Isaiah chapter 6. Look at the first verse together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that is Isaiah, seeing this vision, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. The first thing that we have to see is that this vision is set within the the context of a historical reality, right? All of the celebration of the people of God is set within the context of historical reality. This is not some vague, vacuous, empty ritualism of remembering. What we remember is something that took place in history. Even Isaiah's vision takes place during the course of history in the year that King Uzziah died. All of our celebration is set within the context of historical reality, both that Jesus is the Savior and the the future reality of the return of the Lord. It is as real as any of our celebration that the Lord will return. This is a future historical fact, according to the promise of the Lord. Now, King Uzziah, he had reigned for 52 years. There were people who lived an entire lifetime under the reign of this one king. You get the context in which this vision is given. Second Chronicles 26. It's probably in your footnotes in your Bible, but if you want to write Second Chronicles 26 in the margin there, it gives a bit of the context of the, the life and the reign of King Uzziah. In 26 verse 15... It says, and his fame spread far. That sounds like a good king. For he was marvelously helped. You hear that? Till he was strong. That's King Uzziah. A man of fame, marvelously helped by the Lord who was strong. Uzziah, 
became a great and mighty king through the help of the Lord. Under the reign of the people, the the kingdom saw expansion and they saw dominance over their enemies. This is the reign of King Uzziah. And then the next verse, verse 16, 2 Chronicles 26. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. I have to sit in that one sometimes. I have to wonder, how much is that my story? I have an image of myself that I'm still quite young. I'm not old enough to be proud yet. I'm not old enough to have done anything that I could take pride and think that I've really grown to some great strength myself. And then I was talking with somebody at Coco Playhouse this week, and they automatically went to guessing that I was 40 years old. And I'm like, well, actually, I'm a little bit older than that. And I realized, you know what, I've done a couple things in my life. And a couple things I'm actually kind of proud of. And and a couple things that I've done in my life are actually kind of, of good. And I have to ask myself, do I understand that I have been helped by the Lord and its grace and the abundance of its kindness and mercy that anything sweet has happened in my midst? Am I still dependent upon Him? Or is this my verse? Second Chronicles 26.16, my life verse. But He was strong, He grew proud to His destruction. He, Isaiah, Uzziah entered the temple. He began to perform ceremonies that were not the proper place of an earthly king. He saw himself as something more than what the Lord had given to him. He began to operate outside of what the Lord had, had commissioned him to. And this vision opens with the death of Uzziah. His last years were, were terrible years. Look at Second Chronicles Verse 20, chapter 26, to read through that. For the people, this time was a time of mourning and anxiety. This king who had lasted so long, perhaps definitely beyond the years of his righteousness. And the Lord squashes this feeling of mourning and anxiety in a matter of words. Look at verse 1 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the midst of that context of mourning and anxiety, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. We'll very quickly come to see what the Bible means by the promised presence of the Lord. The Lord sitting on His throne, present among His people. What can we observe about the Lord during the course of this vision? The first thing that we see is we see a throne. There's a reason that this title of this series is Waiting for Our King. The, the Lord is, is drawing our attention right here in Isaiah 6, 1 to something that is often forgotten reality about the Lord, that He has a crown. He is on a throne. He is the Lord and the King of creation. He who sits upon a throne and He's high and lifted up, the passage says. There is no throne above His throne. That means that we have but one master, but one way in the kingdom, and yet we run after many masters. We're blown and tossed by our evil desires. We are people filled with anxiety in this world when a variety of circumstances change. And this is a drastic circumstance. This is the changing of a... A great kingdom. 
We're told that the Lord was on the throne. Uzziah became great, but his earthly throne was helped by the Lord of heaven, who was high and lifted up. We're told that his robe filled the temple. What we see in the temple of this passage is not just an earthly temple. We get a glimpse into the heavenly throne room of God, where the Lord presides over all of creation. The train of the Lord's robe fills the heavenly temple, and the Lord is great. The Lord is complete in His glory and complete in His reign. There's, there's no spot that's carved out for like an under king in His kingdom. He's the king, and He fills the whole of the throne room with His reign and glory. And in that room, we saw that there are seraphim in verse 2. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The faces are covered. Blinded by the glory of the Lord, they cover their face. Their feet are covered, covering their creatureliness. They are angels, heavenly beings, created for the very purpose of serving as messengers in the very presence of the Lord. And yet, even their glory is a lesser glory. A glory that's nothing compared to the presence of the glory of the Lord. And so they cover their creatureliness in the presence of the eternal King. And they're flying. They are the glorious angels who move and they serve in the very throne room of heaven. This is where we see the Lord. This is are His great creatures to execute His great purposes in history. And their cry is worship. The cry is a statement of the reality about the God in whose presence they serve. Three times holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. He brings His glory near to earth for all to see His holiness. And there's a booming voice and there's smoke. Are you getting a clear picture? Do we have to go on? The picture of of what we're talking about when we consider the presence of the Lord. And that's the one who stepped into a manger. The one who is served by seraphim like this. The one whose glory fills the heavenly temple. Friends, the reality is the Lord is awesome and He is king. He's glorious. He's splendorous. He is the one who can help a great earthly king. And yet that one in Advent we celebrate is near. For centuries the Lord made His presence known in the midst of the temple. Isaiah is all about a prophecy that the Lord is coming in a far more imminent way than simply in a temple for the people to approach through a variety of ceremonies that the Lord had established. He's coming in an imminent, in an Emmanuel, God with us sort of way. The Lord is near. And in Advent, we also celebrate that the Lord has come. Do we realize that what what we're talking about when we say that the Lord has come in His incarnation, that Jesus was born as a child, that what we're talking about is the Lord of all creation stepping in among us. The One who is overwhelmingly glorious and eternally holy has come to dwell with us. 
This is a historical reality. It has taken place. This is what the disciples got just a glimpse of in the transfiguration. Emmanuel, God with us, is not sentimentality. It's not just sweet. It's sweet. You can't read the passages of the Incarnation and Luke and the other Gospels and not be overwhelmed with the sweetness of it all. But it's not just sweet. It's not sentimental. It's the powerful coming of the Lord of all of creation. So to long for the coming of Jesus is to long to enter into the glory and wonder of this scene. In Advent, don't just celebrate that He came. Long to enter into this scene. To long for Jesus is to long for the presence of the eternal glory and holiness of the Lord in the midst of His people. Friends, I need help to do that. I need the Word to do that. I need song. I need somebody to sing and say, hey, sing with me. And I say, okay, I'll do it. I don't feel it, but I'm going to do it because I want to long for the eternal presence of the glorious King. Let's continue with Isaiah. Verse 5, things take a turn. When, When Isaiah finally speaks up, hear what he says. I said, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Even the seraphim were smart enough to cover their eyes. Isaiah has seen the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. Woe. Woe is a curse. Isaiah knows that he stands condemned in the sight of the holiness of the Lord. The angels themselves, even as they are singing and crying out this great call of heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As they, they cry out the character and the glory of the Lord God, it's that, that cry, that worship is condemnation of Isaiah. The Lord is holy. I am not. There's a reason that that we don't just gather. We sing holy, holy, holy sort of songs very often at the beginning of our service. And there's a reason why we don't just come sing holy, holy songs and then go. Because as we gather, I know as I gather, I, I know I'm not just a holy, holy, holy singer. Or else I would be like the vain people of Isaiah 1. I know I'm a woe person. I'm not one of the seraphim who has rightly co- covered my eyes and who has rightly covered my feet and has rightly served the Lord with the whole of my being and creatureliness. No, I'm a person who's condemned. And so in our service, we continue from some words of song that actually condemn us to words of the gospel that speak how a people might come into the presence of a holy God through the sufficient atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Woe is me, Isaiah says. He's He's lost. He's a man who is undone. He's a man with unclean lips. I know for the kids who are with us this morning, my thought for a long time as I read that scripture was that, man, this guy must have had a potty mouth, right? He's a man, I mean, what did he say that morning? This isn't talking about Isaiah's cursing. He didn't use some bad words that week and and hang out with people who, who used bad words. He's referring to chapter 1. 
to a people who filled the temple with empty, ritualistic worship. Empty, vain words from a heart that was not engaged with the Lord in faith. The reality is that empty words of worship aren't worship at all. They are quite the contrary. They are unclean. They are not worthy of entrance. They are to be purged from the presence. They are unacceptable. They are not welcome in the presence of the Holy God. They are, they are, they are words, they're not words of fellowship with God. On the contrary, they're words that cut us off from the glory of God. Words that are just words. Words that are just ritual. Words that are not engaged with the Lord in faith. What did Isaiah say he saw? Isaiah says, My eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If we will see the Lord as as the King that He really is, it will guard our imaginations about the Lord from the sentimentality that we often associate with His coming. A sentimentality that often leads to a, a very empty worship in this season of Advent. Much like the people of Isaiah 1 ignored the holiness of God in their worship, we too are in danger of ignoring the reality of the divine and kingly reign of Jesus. When we celebrate Advent, we are celebrating the coming and longing for the coming of the King. In a book that I've been reading in preparation for this series, it's a book by Robert Weber. He writes this, Unfortunately, We frequently fail to see what Isaiah saw. We allow the goals, ambitions, and everyday responsibilities of life to be so central to our thoughts that we fail to shut down and center on the Holy One, the Creator. I just want to pause there for a second. We allow the goals, ambitions, and everyday responsibilities. I wish I was that noble. I wish I was so noble that it was only great goals and ambitions in life that I doggedly pursued that were the means of of my distraction. So we could say, I'm sorry, God, I was so distracted by the goal that I should be focused on you in the midst of the goal. I'm distracted by far more foolish things than that. We live in an age of distraction. Empty words and empty images and empty thoughts. And and we doggedly pursue them. What if we paused for a moment? What if we allowed the calendar this year to call out to the people of God? People of God, there, there is a light that has shone into the darkness. There is a substance that could fill up the empty places. There is a king that could occupy a rightful throne. Friends, if you think that you're sitting on the throne, know that in your life, what you really believe is the throne is empty. But it's not. By faith, what we confess is the Lord is on the throne. He directs my steps and He dethrones ambitions and goals He dethrones every day responsibility, puts himself there. He eliminates distractions as we see him. Weber continues, by faith, he went to the very heart of human existence himself. Like Isaiah, we need to get beyond the form of our worship. We need to experience the presence of the one who stands over us to judge us. 
Yes. That's the role of a king. He doesn't abdicate his role. He judges us. And to heal us. And to restore us. To complete the sentence, what we are restored to is fellowship with him. Fellowship with our king. Whom we get to call Father. As we see the Lord for who He is, we see ourselves for who we really are. That's what takes place for Isaiah. As we place our faith and our hope in the Lord who is the King, He restores to us a joy and a peace and a holiness in His presence. So the call for us in Advent is to long to see the King for who He is. And to see not only who He is, but what He's doing in the midst of this people. What He has done and what He has promised to do. What we see in verse 6 is what the Lord does. The Lord cleanses. Look at verse 6 with me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The burning coal. The Lord sends His servant, one of the seraphim, to Isaiah to cleanse Isaiah right at the point of his most, his greatest need. It's the Lord who works the cleansing. And it's Isaiah who is blessed with atoning mercy. I'll say it again. Don't miss what happens in this passage. It's the Lord who sends His messenger to Isaiah. It is the Lord who works to cleanse, to atone. And it's Isaiah who simply receives the mercy of the Lord. That's why we looked at Isaiah 1. Remember the order. Remember the order of Isaiah 1. It's the Lord points out the sin of the people. Isaiah 1, was the Lord points out the, the emptiness of their vain ritualism. Secondly, the Lord calls the people to repentance. And we all know what people who repent do, right? They do what they repented of again. If all they have is, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Thank God that the king of creation is not a king of second chances, who calls a people who have done wrong into his throne and say, let me tell you what you've done wrong. Let me tell me that you better never do it again or else and then send them on their way. Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to be back in that throne room again. He's going to say, not this time. And yet, that's how so many of us live. We live that perhaps on a weekly cycle when we gather on Sunday. That There's really only two aspects to the, to the gospel. That the Lord calls us sinners and we promise we won't do it again. And again. And again. But that's not... The story of Isaiah 1, it's not the story of Isaiah 6, it's not the story of the gospel throughout the scriptures. The third phase of Isaiah 1 is the Lord promises redemption. The Lord promises an actual cleansing. The Lord does the work in Isaiah 1 and in Isaiah 6. The glory of the Lord puts Isaiah in his place. Isaiah repents before the holiness of the Lord. And, and Isaiah doesn't even say, I won't even do it again. <laughs> I won't say that. I won't do that. The people won't do it either. I'll talk to him. He knows better than that. He's going to talk to him and he's going to see what happens. Isaiah repents before the holiness of the Lord, but it's the Lord who works on behalf 
of the one who is engaged with him in faith, who trusts him enough to come in humility like Isaiah does. And the Lord works on his behalf for the forgiveness of his sin. Friends, Advent is a time to remember that salvation belongs to our God. Some of you this morning, even your engagement in worship this morning is an attempt to save yourself. That is vain worship. It's empty. And it does not qualify. Advent, this Advent for you, is a time to remember that salvation belongs to our God. He is the King and He has worked. We wait for Him to cleanse and to redeem. This is what faith is. The person of faith knows that he is utterly lost in his sin and this person of faith looks to the Lord who alone can rescue and has promised to redeem, to cleanse, to atone. This is what we remember with faith in Advent, that the light of Jesus has come, right? We remember that historical reality. The light of Jesus has come to dwell among us. That He came to save a people who were sinners and who walked in darkness. A people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, right? That He gave His life as an atonement for sinners on a cross. That's what the Lord did. That by grace, through faith, and the work of Jesus, we too can be cleansed of our sin. And because of His resurrection, we too may share in His glorious life and the expectation of eternity in the presence of the heavenly King. And by His Spirit, He's promised to dwell among us. The Spirit's advent has come even as we long for Jesus to return and consummate the kingdom and gather to Himself the people that He has purchased. That's actually not where the passage ends. The passage actually continues in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. I love Isaiah's response there. He doesn't say, Here I am. I'll do it. Here I am. If you would send, I will go. It's still the Lord working. It's still the Lord sending. The Lord sends Isaiah. Who will go? Here am I. Send me. The Lord cleansed His servant Isaiah in order to send him with news of the Lord's holiness. So again, this isn't just a sentimental season. It's not just a sentimental sending. Isaiah is to bear the whole of the message. We don't just say, hey, hey culture, hey neighbor, hey family, let's all get together and remember that time that Jesus was born as a baby. It's going to be so much fun. And let's give gifts, kind of like somebody gave some gifts to him, right? It's not just a sentimental gospel that we are sent with. It's the whole thing to speak the reality of vain worship and empty words. What if that was a part of our celebration? What if we were not afraid to have a part of our Advent, our Christmas celebration, be to confess that we are a people of unclean lips, and we dwell among a people of unclean lips, like my whole house. And to hear the call to repentance, we know. We know, Lord, where we stand. And and we stand condemned. We are wrong. Woe is me unless you act. And then we go and we remember that the Lord has acted and is acting and will come again. The call to wait upon the Lord's salvation in faith. This is the order of our Advent celebration. 
My prayer for us is this, that over the course of these five weeks, the order of this passage would become the order of our experience of Advent. That, that we wouldn't simply remember things, that we wouldn't simply walk through a series of steps and stages and readings, but the Lord would come and gather among us, that He would transform us, that we, He would come with the atoning coal of the cross of Christ. He would cleanse us. My prayer is that the Lord would awaken each one of us from from dead ritual this year. Distracted hearts. And He would rescue us to the reality of His reign. You know He's King, right? You know that the King has come, right? And you know that the King is coming again. Heavenly Father, That is our confession. We know it to be true because you've said it to be so. You've borne witness to it in trustworthy scriptures. You bore witness to it even before it took place, but by your promise it was sure. You are the king. You are the king who has come. And Lord, we've watched it. It's a mystery. I don't understand how how like a, a coal touching a guy's lips makes him clean. It seems like it just burns. But Lord, in the cross of Christ, we've had the mystery revealed that there was a substitutionary cleansing. Just like the animals couldn't do it, all those sacrifices, just like the coal can't really do it. The Christ, the perfect substitute in the place of sinners, can and has. We know the inner workings of the atonement. And so we know that when you come, we belong to you. We've been cleansed, we've been purchased, and so we long. We long today that we confess that the the vanity of our distractions and the foolishness of so much of our worship, we we confess that it's weak. It's, It's not what we know to be real and true and eternal. Thank you for the gift of that knowledge that the call to repentance has actually taken root in many of our hearts this morning. I pray that you would take root in yet another who would confess you this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would enter in in such a way that we see that you're a king and you you are worthy, that you are able to redeem us, that we need not live in fear. We who are a woe people have been redeemed into a worship people who can worship with reverence and awe in the very presence of the Lord God by grace through faith. And so, Lord, we ask that you would create worship among your people this morning, genuine worship that is pleasing to the Lord. Thank you for doing that. We trust in you for it. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.